We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. We would also like to acknowledge that recognition is nothing without action, and we invite our listeners to take actions towards reconciliation with us today in honor of the Human Rights Day. By familiarizing ourselves with the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, we hope to know better how to work towards the fulfillment of these rights. We encourage everyone to join us in using this knowledge to choose elected officials that prioritize Indigenous human rights and to put pressure on all elected officials and government organizations to promptly ensure that the laws of Canada are consistent with the Declaration. You can find links to that in the episode description. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Dylan Kate. This episode is all about spirituality and belonging, autoethnography, and above all, going back to the beauty. Today we're talking to Dr. Shemin Ghulam Hussain, Assistant Professor in the Department of Child and Youth Care at McEwen University. Shemin has a keen interest in understanding the recreational experiences of Canadian newcomers and how they relate to their spiritual identities. She is also driven by international collaborations with colleagues that have helped her and Carolyn Coyle from the University of the Shannon, previously known as the Athlone Institute of Technology in Ireland, to establish a global perspectives in social care and child and youth care collaborative. Shemin? Thank you so much for being with us here today. It's my honor. Yeah, so I guess let's dive right in. Um, So can you tell us just about yourself and your journey to becoming a researcher? Yeah, Um, it's been a wild journey. I started, uh, I guess my pure research really started after I started to travel in between my master's and my PhD. So I went out to East Africa, um, very particularly Tanzania. And I started to look at how young children were accessing education. And while I was traveling into these spaces, I really got, I was in a moment of real discomfort because I kind of belonged, but I didn't belong. And so I started to really try and focus on this idea of sense of belonging, which brought me back to do my research. So I think traveling with intentionality has been kind of the caveat or the push for my research. Okay. And like, what about before that? Like what, even, even earlier, kind of what led you to want to work with, with children and to study child and youth care? Oh gosh. Um, I started, uh, I started actually, um, let me think about this one. Sorry. Um, I actually in full honesty had no intention to go to university. Uh, I ended up at the university of Alberta playing varsity field hockey and in the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies. And um, during the first summer, I ended up working at camp for kids with differing abilities, and I fell in love. I fell in love with the work, and so over the years, um, I really worked to increase my grades. (laughs) Um, And I had an assistant professor at the University of Alberta who really helped me get to the University of Waterloo. Um, so there I switched and I went into therapeutic recreation and I really focused on how do we use recreation as a means of healing and coping for people with differing abilities. Um, after that, I 
wanted to do something more. So I applied to the University of Victoria Child and Youth Care Master's Program, and I was lucky enough to get it in. Um, I was more excited to move to the island than to the school. (laughs) Um, But I started to really try and wrap my head around this idea of recreation, child and youth development. And so that kind of led me to some of my travels. It led me to some of my curiosities. Um, And then from there, I had a really challenging experience in counseling. Um, And so we had a mock counseling class and I had a really difficult challenge. uh, Sorry, I had a really challenging counselor who kind of set me on a path of not knowing myself. And so I was pretty confident. I was fun going, lighthearted, energetic. And then all of a sudden, after a 20 minute conversation, I felt like I was not a great student, not a great child, not a great sibling. Um, You know, I had all of these things that I was doing not well. And so that really set me on a course of understanding what was missing in that counseling session, which was spirituality. Um, What was missing was the connection to the self, connection to other, connection to other than human. And so I guess that's really where it went. And then from there, I did the Africa travel, East Africa travel, and then I came back and did more work. And so I've just kind of been on this rolling journey of personal exploration and trying to connect it to children and youth that I work with uh, day in and day out and now with the students here at McEwen. Wow, wow. that is, that is <laughs> amazingly summed up. That is that is like 10, 15 years of of stuff crammed into 20 seconds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, so when when you like again like you just it's like oh well i i got my masters and then i did this there's a lot of stuff in between there that is all personal development and some of some of the other researchers that we've been discussing with uh have talked about their own own personal uh journeys and almost none of them knew where they were going to end up Mm -hmm. it's very so interesting and inspiring to me because that makes me feel good about myself because i don't think i'm where i want to be essentially you know you know you know you're exactly where you're supposed to be at the point in time that you're there yeah but it's all on the journey to get to wherever that might take us you know the end goal (laughs) well and i mean that is something that uh, i definitely want to talk about is like auto ethnographic research. So Mm -hmm. you've had all these experiences and and you're kind of following this journey. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the autoethnographic aspects of your research um, and just kind of how this is a very different methodology than people might see regularly? Yeah, it's definitely one that's embedded in the personal journey and making research personal. It makes it risky. It makes it extremely vulnerable. Um, And I really lean on Ellis Adams and Boschner's work um, throughout the the many years, probably the last decade plus, I've been reading a lot of their work and they really rely on that risky, vulnerable aspect. And one thing that drew me to autoethnography actually was I wanted to ask other people, how did recreation play out in your life? What was its purpose? How did it influence who you are today? But I had never stopped to ask myself that. And I really struggled with this idea, the ethics behind asking others something that I myself was not willing to explore. And so that led me to autoethnography. And interestingly enough, you you know, you talk about not knowing where your journey's headed. And I was actually a late bloomer. I didn't start to read until grade seven. You know, I really struggled academically throughout my academics. And so I think 
that part of that autoethnography was allowing me to revisit that and to say, you know what, all of those difficult, challenging moments in your life have allowed you to do this work. And it makes me feel more connected to the people I get to work with now because I see their struggles. I know their struggles. I've sat with them in a really intimate way. And um, yeah, yeah, I I love that it, you know, this kind of research, I've never really um, been, I guess, not prescribed assigned yeah (laughs) i've never really been assigned like auto ethnographic research so to me it's really interesting that it kind of turns this idea of the researcher as being this like cold sterile Mm -hmm. you know non-involved person whereas this is a way to bring your personal experiences and to inform like i know what these struggles are like and so you know the questions to ask and i think that that's really cool and important yeah like have informed questioning See, that's one of the the major focuses uh, for our research in the music department is is a lot of it is uh, auto ethnographic, yeah. um, where it's a personal reflection of our own personal practice and and uh, you know performance anxiety and all those those other fun things that we love to deal with. Um, so I, I'm a little little bit familiar with it, but nowhere near as versed as I uh, definitely should be. <laughs> I think the other piece of that is, you know, we we forget that autoethnographic is always looking outward as well, right? So there's a piece of I have to look inward to make sense and make meaning, but I also have to balance this idea of um, the work has to be meaningful to someone else. So it's not just me writing my story. It's me writing my story in the ethnographic context of we live in context, we live in time, we live in space. And so I think that becomes that really nice connecting point is that it's not biographical. Mm-hmm. It is always looking out to community. Yeah. And a, a big part of your body of research um, is this connection between recreation, spirituality, and a sense of belonging. So can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. um, about how these things interact and about your research? Yeah. It started really as I was starting to do my own doctoral research around this concept. I started to realize I always went back to my experience of playing ringette. I always went back to my experience of playing soccer or moving my own physical body and how that let me belong in communities that perhaps maybe as a second generation immigrant, I wouldn't have belonged otherwise. Or I look at my parents and, you know, I I vividly remember a ringette game and my parents came late because they went to prayers first to the Jamaat Khana. And my mom showed up in a sari and my dad showed up in a suit to an ice rink, right? Like those are very vivid newcomer immigrant experiences that matter. And so that's when I started to think about how spirituality, religion, recreation, movement, all of these things started to intersect with one another and how difficult that must have been for my parents who are unable to articulate what did it mean to come in those clothes to a hockey arena to be separated from the other non-immigrant parents and yet still be fully, fully there for their child. And so my research really sits in that tension of how do we balance all of these things? How do we negotiate and navigate our movements? I look at young children and another vivid reminder of this I have is sitting at a public library and you see kids of all cultural, religious, spiritual backgrounds and some are reading in Arabic and some are reading in English and some are talking to their parents in French and others in English. And in that space, these children are just moving around 
as if it's just normal everyday stuff and how do we educate them out of that and so my work is really to think about how do we go back to that natural movement how do we go back to those ways of belonging in spaces that maybe weren't made for us and I really do believe recreation is that and I want to preface that with recreation being a freely chosen activity so it's different than sport it's different than um yeah it's that okay yeah like so and so it's not just sport so Mm -hmm. like maybe you could explain to us like a little bit more about like okay then what kind of recreation are you looking at Mm -hmm. that's a great question and something I've been really curious about so the research I've done to date um, here while I've been at McEwen has really talked uh, it I've talked to various first generation and second generation immigrants um, with a, a large population of them being international students and the ways that they've defined recreation include volunteerism they include sport some of them some of them it includes journaling or art-based crafts Some of them, it's learning to cook their traditional foods, right? So people are naming recreation in various ways. And I think that becomes really critical in the work that we do is that there is no one definition. The one that stood out for me really was volunteerism. I never thought about that as recreation. But for that person, it was a freely chosen activity. They got to do it with people they loved and they cared about. They got to give back to community. So they had a sense of belonging in that community. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, because I was having a hard time kind of like wrapping my head around like sports and spirituality. Like I'm sure that those things do interplay. But now when you explain like that recreation is not just going and like playing soccer or being on a basketball team that, you know, charity or like it's community, community work could be your recreation. So yeah, I think that's yeah. I mean, I uh, I tell this to everybody, but I I um, I'm a c- competitive barbecue enthusiast, <laughs> so I go to barbecue competitions and I hang out with other barbecue competitors, and it's like a big community. So that's that's kind of mm-hmm. my recreation. It uh, does is not athletic at all, and mm-hmm. I've gained a ton of weight um, from <laughs> from partaking in these competitions. Um, yeah. But it's really the it really is the community that I'm in, I'm engaged with and. Um, what, why I return to these things. Yeah. And I think that's the part. Where do you feel comfortable? Where do you feel safe? Where do you feel accepted? Where do you feel heard and seen? And that becomes that spiritual part, that connection that to self other and other than human, like I like to say, um, which is from Sheridan's work. So, yeah. Yeah. So then I want to talk a little bit about, um, your study on recreation as a meaning making process for newcomers to Canada. You briefly like did touch on kind of where where the first thoughts mm-hmm. um, came from, but like how did this project like where and when did it actually start? Um, and can you tell us a little bit about like your community partners that you're working with mm. and just the project as a whole? Give us all the details. <laughs> yeah, so it actually came out of my doctoral work where I realized that that was a key part of my work and I needed to continue it. So I needed to move it beyond the self and move it into community. So I would say that's where it really started that was it's it's provocation um I currently I started on my own as a solo researcher Uh, I think that's something doctoral work kind of filters you into and then slowly I opened up to collaborators so I'm currently working with the multicultural health brokers co-op of 
uh, here in Edmonton who has helped me expand into places like the Africa Society, um, working with the Edmonton Police Wi-Fi O community um, leaders, so they're youth workers, uh, working with child services. So we're trying to understand some of the difficulties or challenges, limitations that some of our immigrant youth experience and what might be leading them to what we would call dangerous, risky behaviors and and ultimately landing themselves in uh, the criminal system. And so it's very, very new work. It's very just on just getting rolling. Um, but I think it is embedded in some of the individual conversations I've had with youth that have explained recreation in, in very positive ways. And so how do we bring that back to the youth that are struggling? How do we reach out to the ones that we don't necessarily get to engage with until maybe they've already done the criminal act? Okay. Um, yeah. So when you say it's like just starting, starting, like like how have you are you doing focus groups? Have you mm-hmm. done any focus groups? Do you have any like preliminary findings? Do you have an, uh, 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 what do you call that thing? Not an urge, not a premonition. Like a provocation? A yeah, pro- or like a, um, a theory or yeah. a, a- Oh, a thesis. A thesis, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry about no, that, that, everyone. <laughs> um, I guess part of it is that like- um, when I say beginning, I'm really still just focusing on some of the individual interviews I've had okay. and really thinking about what they're talking about. These are young people that are actively engaged in community. They're willing to share their story. Um, and then from there, we're hopeful that that will at least give us a foundation to seek out some funding and support um, to kind of offer something to community elders that can get us in touch with some of the youth that might be harder to reach. And so that's kind of our barrier at this moment is really accessing the young people that probably need the support the most because they're very good at protecting themselves and protecting their families by not being overly engaged in community. Okay. Well, I mean, we'll have to follow the project. And yeah. if anyone has funds for Shemin. <laughs> yeah, please send them. Yeah, please send them. Um, okay. So this this guy's just like a baby hmm. getting rolling. Um so what about exploring the relationship between recreation and leisure in faith-based community engagement? Can you tell us a little bit about um, this project? Yeah, these projects are very linked. Okay. Um, and so they are very much, the hope is that the the one bigger project around understanding spirituality, religion, recreation, uh, belonging will then split off to make meaning of this idea of how does faith fit into that. So that's really more of a side interest of how does that one node of intersect play out in um, the community. And one of the reasons that this is coming up is that we know that uh, here in Edmonton specifically that our Somalian communities are at higher risk of um, what we might define as risky behavior. And we also know that Um, that there's a large population of movement into the Edmonton region by refugees. Um, And so how do we support these people um, as we know that their population is gaining um, more and more geographical space here? Okay. And like, how are you kind of like structuring this? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious um, in your methodology, because you do have research that is auto ethnographic. um, Does that play into these projects? Like what, what part of autoethnography might be 
um, mm-hmm. at work in this this body of research here? Oy, <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, I there has to be a moment of stepping outside of the autoethnography and really thinking about it in an ethnographic manner. So really thinking about it community oriented. What will continue to come back is the personal experiences or the responses that I have. So I often, if you think about methodology, I'll go in, I'll do individual interviews or sometimes focus groups, depending on the people um, and their comfort levels. And then from there, I'll reflect on my experience. So I might go home and say, oh my gosh, I was shaking during that session. What was coming up? And that might become part of the data. Or I might go home and like, ramble to my partner for hours and so then I'll document that and say you know obviously something was sitting with me that I can't just shake as I left the room and so then that becomes part of that conversation or the data Um, and so it's more of a reflective piece Um, and and that is seen as a huge bias in research right because it's all about what did I feel what did I experience that kind of provokes me to create themes and codes and all of those more um Rigid is not the right word. More traditional forms of methodology. Um, And so I have to justify why that is. And part of it is movement. And part of it is how did I feel sitting beside someone? And and why does that then become part of the spiritual connection? Because the conversation wouldn't have happened if we weren't moving in that particular way together. Wow. It's like your research... And I don't want to be like reductive, but it's like a form of therapy, it sounds like, because you're getting no, but you're getting to like explore, um, not just like, this is how I felt, but like, why did I feel that way? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have a really hard time with reflecting on a regular basis of, you know, we know when we feel angry, when we feel Mm -hmm. scared or anxious, but most of the time we're like, I don't know why I feel like this, but I feel like this. Mm -hmm. So it must be um, challenging to, to have that level of introspection for sure. It's challenging. It is therapeutic. I think um, being able to do it in the moment with the people that you're working with as as well, um, because I, I do try very hard to not have it be one directional. So they're giving me information. I want them to feel like they left. They shared an important story. They're making a contribution to community. They feel a little bit better about their experience. Maybe they've learned a way to navigate or negotiate a situation. And I, for me, that becomes the ethical part of this work is that these people can't just be giving me stuff. I have to be returning in some manner. And so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like the most community engaged, (laughs) community engaged research we've talked about um, so far. So yeah, I guess up next, um, Global Perspective Symposium. So this is actually um, a more, I guess, finished. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe finished. Yeah. Um, Tell us about it. Yeah. So um, the third year child and youth care pro- or students have been traveling to Ireland for over a decade. And so every winter semester they go for a four, well, I think initially 14 days and now we're about 10-ish days. And they go to Ireland, they go to the Athlone Institute of Technology, now the University of the Shannon. Um, they see some of the community partners at play throughout Ireland. So Dublin, we go up to Belfast, Northern Ireland, and then we also go over to Scotland um, Glasgow and we spend some time at the University of Strathclyde and we see some of their community partners as well and when I went in 2020 
just before COVID oh, hit. Wow. Like yeah. we landed probably two weeks before. Oh, no. um, so it was. Oh, you wanted to go during St. Patty's <laughs> yeah. Day. I know why yeah. you were there. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> what other time would you go? Um, so when we were there, I met Carolyn Coyle and she did this. She took our students into her art based poetry class and she did what she calls a collective poetry. So all of the students wrote down two or three words. She took these words and she created this really cool poem out of it. And the prompt, if I remember correctly, was how are you feeling? And so, you know, you had jokes mixed in and you had lightheartedness and you had some seriousness. And it was just so beautiful the way she did this. And her and I stayed in touch. And then this year during COVID, when I had to redevelop or reimagine this global perspectives course one of the things i really intentionally did was invite guest speakers in and so i had colleagues from um various parts of the world come in and do a, a an interview and a guest lecture share a little bit about their creative and innovative ways of practice with children and youth and carolyn was part of that so we got to connect on another level and as we did this we started to realize that people are doing really cool stuff and COVID has opened up a way, a different way of being creative and innovative. And we really wanted to highlight that. So we figured there was no better way to do that than to bring people together in a virtual setting. So we just put this thing together. We decided that global perspectives in social care, social care being the allied field of child and youth care in Ireland um, and, and child and youth care practice together, we had eight speakers um, they spoke about poetry, they spoke about radio, they spoke about podcasting, they spoke about art-based work, adventure, outdoor therapy. They, And then we also had two scholars who are Indigenous, one to Ireland and one to uh, Canada in Ireland, them being called the Travelers. And they were telling us stories about how are they doing this in, in very um, spiritual and yet still community oriented ways of being virtual so how do you offer protocol in a virtual setting how do you do these um conversations with elders who technology might not be their comfort zone and so we just had this beautiful half a day together where we had eight presenters we had a poet um kind of spread our our work apart we had one poet who talked about how they started doing a i believe it's called like geocaching where they mapped it on google maps and poets would put up their poetry because they couldn't come together. So we just, this this beautiful thing just came out of it. And we had this really great conversation, which then led us actually to um, publishing on this experience of how do we virtually cross borders mm -hmm. in order to continue the cool work that we do. Okay. I think- COVID has paved the way for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean- you know, silver linings. There's always something. Um, oh, I have so many silver linings of this pandemic, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I'm I'm not going to go into them because I've talked about them at at, at my you know at, to the end. Yeah, of you have to I, listen to all, all our the, other all our podcasts, podcasts to string together um, yeah. Dylan's silver linings. It's my an underlying linings. theme. Um, <laughs> Look at the the bright side of life with Dylan Cave. <laughs> yes, I actually I feel like I forgot to ask a very important question very early on. Um, so when you talk about studying child and youth care, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> oh gosh, uh, it would. I think it varies, and I think the really fun thing about child and youth care is that we are focused on children, youth, and their families, and the ways that they 
belong and interact and develop in their context. And so for me, child and youth care shifts with time. It shifts with um, context. So I think it looks fairly different in South Africa than it does in Zambia, than it does here in Canada and even in Ireland. Um, the other thing about child and youth care is it, if I, if I remember correctly, now please don't quote me, but if I remember quite correctly, it really started in group care. And so how do we support children who are not living with their biological guardians and how do we take care of them in these settings? And I think over the years, as contexts have changed, our practice has changed. And so we really are focused on child, youth, and families. Okay, so it's not like child like education. You no. guys aren't developing curriculum. No. Okay, yeah. I was like, everything to do with children no. is clearly encompassed in this discipline. No, that would be early years. Okay, <laughs> so okay, so you guys are looking at like n- perhaps non educational like you're looking at Mm -hmm. care for maybe a more holistic yeah so we'll think about things like the mental health of young people we'll think about things like transitioning out of care what does it mean to live in um, guardianship versus biological families how do children's behaviors play out in the classroom maybe might be a role a child and youth care practitioner will take up to support a teacher okay um yeah so we kind of dabble in a lot of spaces you know what i i really love about this because this is one of our our final episodes this season um one of our first episodes of this season is it had a lot to do with with youth care and mm. and uh you know some youth that have been aged out of the the the, the child care systems um and one of the reoccurring themes that i keep seeing is is returning them to c- their culture mm-hmm. and and help using culture as a way of 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 um oh what what was i what like reconnect yeah reconnecting to giving purpose giving Mm -hmm. um so so um you talked a little bit about uh similar similar things in your own research Mm -hmm. um do you want to speak maybe a little bit more to how you incorporate um culture into these Mm -hmm. practices and spirituality Spirituality. i think specifically um so how spirituality can be used to enhance practice in child and youth care I think the I think the biggest thing about this is how do how do people define spirituality? Okay, well and let's so, get into <laughs> So for me, spirituality really I've said it a few times, but is connection to self, other or other than human, however you want to define that. It could be nature, it could be a god, it could be um yeah, however you you define that. Um religion is in my definition more of a formal practice. And so you belong to a community, there are guidelines and rules that you practice by and there is um a dedicated way to practice so when i think about the inclusion of spirituality and culture in my practice as a child and youth care practitioner um, it's very much going down to what parts of your community what parts of your culture are you connected to what parts do you not maybe even know or understand and then really out of my research, what happens is the part around what feels like I should be doing something, but I don't even know what that feeling is or means. And so that connection to the self is somewhat limited because we have been brought up in in a space, especially here in Canada, where we live in multicultural or many cultures in one space. 
and they don't always interact. So we might call ourselves multicultural, but if you even look at the geographical layout of our city, we have dominant groups of culture and religion living in pockets. And so how do these young bodies then start to understand, well, I really want to play on this park, but I'm wearing a hijab and no other kid is wearing it. So do I belong in that space? You do belong in that space, but we just need to figure out how are you going to get into that space and feel safe and comfortable, right? Right. Or the other way around, right? So when, um, when the attacks on Muslims around our city was happening, and I, and I do work predominantly from a Muslim-oriented perspective, being a Muslim myself, you know, we started to see schools put up fences around them. Islamic schools, right? There was a protective factor of them negotiating. How do we still belong here? But how do we also remain safe and keep our kids protective? Now, this is my interpretation of it. I haven't talked to the principals. Um, And so the work that I do really starts to say, we need to own our cultures. We need to understand our cultures, but we also need to understand how our cultures might be shifting because we are shifting location in geographical spaces as we cross borders. Wow, that's really interesting. Right? Yeah. What do you, like, what do you, as someone who, who works with children and youth, what are some of the biggest, not barriers, because I don't like the word barrier. I think, what are some of the greatest kind of like either challenges or concerns or things that you see in like young children that are trying to maybe navigate that space? I think a lot of it comes back down to sense of belonging and feeling like they are respected, feeling like they have a voice, that they're being seen, that they belong and that they have the right to belong, I think is, is really the core of it. It comes out in various ways, right? So I think the other challenge with all of this is that young people will behave in a way that will meet their needs and it's not often interpreted as such. So when a young child is screaming in the hall of a school, we don't always spend the quality time understanding what does that scream actually mean? And I think that becomes the limitation of the work that we do. And, and there's so many we could get into the politics of it, but it's time on teachers' hands. It's resources available to that young person. It is language barriers. It is cultural barriers where you don't physically feel like you fit in. And, and culture, not just religious orientation or, or, or the geographical context you come from, but perhaps you are a lot larger body or you are a tiny body and you know short and small and you don't feel like you fit into the fifth grade that you belong to and all of these things play into the culture yeah because I was reading um through your website and you do talk a lot about marginalization um racism and yourself like living in a brown body Mm -hmm. and that has clearly given you um a wonderful perspective into what other people like you and with your kind of experience and life experience mm-hmm. um, may be dealing with that is a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's new. Well, it's not new to the field of child and youth care, but I, it's becoming more prominent in the sense that we need to articulate this. We need to 
understand that different bodies exist differently and yet they can coexist. And so how do we help these bodies coexist? Yeah, because I mean, it's been, we have growing movements. I think that society as a whole is becoming a little bit more socially aware and socially conscious. So are there any like big changes actually in the field that you've seen over your time? Um, in your practice? Studying, in your practice? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would say that I'm fairly new to the field. Okay. Um, what I have seen is shifts in the people that we're working with. And so when I first started, a large population that we worked with were Indigenous children, youth, and families, and or predominantly white families. And I think there's a huge shift that's taking place. I th we are seeing more refugees. We are seeing more first and second generations that are needing support, that are accessing support. So an example of that would be when I worked at a women's transition home uh, for women and children who are experiencing domestic violence. Many years went by that we only saw white families. And then there was a surge in marginalized, racialized women being able to claim, I need safety. And that was a powerful movement to say, I actually need this. And now across Canada, I'll give a shout out to Nisa Homes, right? We have homes, transition homes specializing in the work of women of color and marginalized communities. And I think that that speaks so loudly to the work that scholars in child and youth care, scholars in social work, in human and social development as a whole are making. That's awesome. And those facilities, I mean, I, I have to, I do have to say that those facilities are so important to our society. Um, I, this is a little touchy for me and I maybe shouldn't share it, um, but I grew up and lived in a, in a, in a woman's shelter for a few years of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it was very good that um, our family had a place to go and it wasn't because of domestic violence or anything like that. Um, you know, my parents were going through a rough divorce mm -hmm. and uh it just that's where we needed to live for a while mm -hmm. um but it was very it was so like as a kid you i didn't know what was happening and looking back it was a you know a little bit of a traumatizing experience like oh what this isn't my home why can't i be at home and and things like that so it's um, more and more of these places um opening and and working with with people who need these services is so important mm -hmm. yeah and we'll throw a link to nisa home's website yeah. and the episode description if you want to go check them out um, or get involved. Uh, and I think maybe now is a good time for a short break. <laughs> let's take let's take a short break. <laughs> digest all of that. Let's take a short break. You've been listening to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast of McEwen University. I'm one of your hosts, Dylan Cave. I'm here with my co-host, Brittany Eklund. And we're going to be right back. More than 900 million toothpaste tubes are entering our landfills and oceans every year on a global scale. Um, that's really crazy when you consider that it takes a toothpaste tube over 500 years to break down um, and they can't be recycled. And toothpaste is something that many people are using on a regular basis. Um, but there is something you can do and Change Toothpaste is there to help you do it. Their toothpaste tablets are just like the paste, but without the waste. Packaged in compostable packages, they keep your mouth and the earth cleaner and fresher, and they don't use any harsh chemicals. Um, 
Please visit changetoothpaste.com to find a full range of their dental hygiene products and try for yourself. They also have things like bamboo toothbrushes, which again is great considering that um, plastic toothbrushes have a relatively short lifespan if you actually listen to your dentist. Um, and those are ending up in the landfill as well. So trying Change Toothpaste, um, it's a small step that makes a big change and it comes in bubblegum flavor. So give it a shot. And we're back. This is Research Recasted. I'm Brittany Eklund. I'm here with Dylan Cave and we're sitting here with Shemin Gulamusain. Um, and she is going to tell us all about, um, or a little bit more about, uh, her work on the Global Perspective Symposium um, in Child and Youth Care this year in jolly old Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was actually virtual, but we did. We had participants from Ireland, the UK, and Canada on the line, so it was okay. Cool. Um, so yeah, we did talk about this a little bit, but I feel like we maybe rushed through it and probably got onto a tangent. Um, so. Yeah, just doubling back, what are some of the most promising practices that mm -hmm. you kind of um, came out of this year's symposium? I would say the biggest one was to be creative and to really let people's passion drive their practice. So for those people that are really interested in hiking and outdoor adventures, to let that become part of their child and youth care practice, or those that were into poetry, using it as a means of connection to the young people we work with and their families. And so that was perhaps the greatest learning I took from it. I also think that another silver lining that came out of the symposium was we can look to other communities to enhance our practice. And so it's really, really thinking with one another across geographical borders, across theories, across social contexts to enhance how we work with young people, especially in a context where we have so many people moving to and moving from. So I say that really with a lot of intention in the fact that a lot of my work does work with people that are marginalized, racialized, and are visibly marginalized and racialized. But there are a lot of immigrants in Canada that come from other um not so visible space, like not visibly migrants. And so even they are navigating and negotiating these spaces. And I think that becomes really important for us to remember. So that was a great reminder that I got out of it was that even if we look alike, we're still very different and we need to be aware of that. Well, I mean, technically I, I am um, the kin of, of um, somewhat recent immigration from from Holland. I'm my family's Dutch and my my Oma and Opa migrated to Canada um during um the Holocaust and yeah. they were they were fleeing from from the occupation. So those those lived migration stories belong in more of us than we shed light on. <laughs> but I mean it's a, it's a culture that I was never raised on. Mm -hmm. It's not something that I I even really learned about from my family. They didn't want to talk about it. Um it it was it was really like I, later now later in my Oma's life before she passed away up until the the last 2 years of her life. I really tried to learn a lot from her and this is kind of going off on a little bit of a tangent <laughs> from what we're talking about. I'm sorry. No. Uh, it just popped in my head. Um but I really tried to learn a little little bit more from her later in my like once I became an adult. Mm -hmm. But I'm really saddened that I didn't get the opportunity to to know more of my family's heritage before mm -hmm. that. 
That reminds me of a, a research thought I have, but maybe we can come back to that idea no, of the research. No, we're on the no, train. On you there. might as well. Yeah. I will. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the one of the things that fascinates me about research and the approach that I use is that I don't really have what maybe others name a research agenda. So I start with a research question. My doctoral research was the, the instigator of a lot of my work. And then I kind of take whatever comes from that and whatever questions I had left, I kind of create the next project. You keep them. That's another thing we talked yeah. about is like yes. never throw anything away. If you have a thought, just write it just down. own it. Yeah. And like uh, also I just want to interrupt here. Uh, deep Cuts Research Recasted. Research agenda is the word that Dylan could not remember or I could remember last episode. Last episode, I, I totally blanked my mind. I was like the research master folder. Yeah, yeah. master folder. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so I don't necessarily have something that might be defined as a research agenda where I'm going to study this and then this is going to come after that and that's going to follow from there. I really pick up on themes and interests and I let the people that I'm doing research with kind of guide it. So I had some of my participants from the recreation, belonging and spirituality research talk to me about how they actually wanted to showcase their research. And so one of the projects that I'm hoping to build from that is uh, a public facing blog that actually has videos of them doing their, what they've defined research or sorry, recreation in and part of that is um, research creation, which Natalie Loveless from the University of Alberta talks a lot about is, you know, allowing research to be a creative, innovative process. And why your why your thoughts actually brought that up was one of the projects that I foresee myself looking into is this idea of pre and post migration trauma. And how does that live in our bodies? And as child and youth care workers, how do we support those narratives in little people's bodies that they might not know it and it comes out of work from boston where they talk about cultural dna and they talk about how those experiences are in our bodies in our dna and i think a lot of us are returning to them naturally so over covid the other thing that came out of the symposium was how many of us went back to some of those ancestral based arts and practices and so people that came from nomadic families how they started to move more and, and explore differently within their regions because of travel advisories, but they were able to like visit physical spaces that part of their cultural familial history belonged to. Or, you know, um, me personally, I took up weaving and knitting, which I'm not really sure where it comes from in my ancestral train, but I know my mom did it and I pretty sure my grandmother did it and I'm pretty sure it comes from somewhere and so you know I that was really cool the symposium really brought that out is how are we moving back to some of those more natural movements and practices so yeah uh, uh, quick, our, wait 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 yes Hold on. I'm waiting <laughs> did you knit the sweater you're wearing right now I didn't but I oh, hope to okay. one day <laughs> knit something I was like similar that is stunning. That was like, you learned that in the pandemic? Hallelujah. Um, what I was going to say um, was one of our pre previous guests, uh, Cheyenne Gray Eyes, had mentioned that exact thing, the the connection um, to, they we inherently it's within us. And the the thing that I think Cheyenne, I hope I'm not misrepresenting mis, um, what she, she had mentioned, but um, is like the she kept uh, saying re return to the earth and return to um, 
uh, getting that 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 uh, feeling of self and other that you you had mentioned um, with with their their family's history in the roots. Like literally, the blood is flowing through the ground, and the the youth that she's working with, she can see it in them, and it's it's like mm-hmm. I don't know, it's mind mind blowing to think like she's so right about just like being connected to something and having that root sense of of rooting yourself i like that i like that idea of like finding the space i covid allowed us to slow down and some of us sped up to meet the demands of our jobs and all those various things but it it gave us time to to refocus i think and i think it allowed us to see advantages and challenges in certain things. And so I know one of your guys' questions was around tech advantages. Yeah, like I'm very interested um, in the role of technology, like not only um, in research, because we have talked to a lot of people who had to shift to like digital Mm -hmm. communications. Um, But when you're talking about youth and child development um, and youth and child mental health, social media obviously is not great and like there i think there's an abundance of studies um but technology like what role um can technology play like are there technological advances that might actually be positive Mm -hmm. for for children and youth the biggest one that comes to mind is this idea of how we as practitioners had to learn how to build rapport in ways that were comfortable for the people that we're working with So it was very much child family oriented. We had to accommodate their capacity. So not really answering your question yet, but this idea that it really challenged us to think about how are we using technology? How are we relying on technology to kind of be a buffer in a space that we actually need to be more intentional? And so just texting someone is perhaps handy But one of the things I learned was that that text had to be grounded in something and it had to be meaningful and purposeful. So the words that we use become more intentional. And I think that was really great for a lot of new and emerging practitioners and perhaps maybe even seasoned practitioners as a a reminder. When I think about children, youth and families, I really think about how families coordinated and we saw this on news in various places connection across spaces right you would have these fam virtual family gatherings for example zoom right you'd see people posting pictures all over social media oh i met my first cousin um and i've never met them before and zoom allowed us to do that those are advances that i think we need to hold on to i think we need to allow people to go back to those inherit ways of being and one of the ways to do that is for them to continue to use technology to connect with people that they might not have ever been able to i think that accessing libraries in different ways became a really powerful thing people were reading virtually people were using tools like that those are things that i think practitioners returned to because we felt limited in how we could offer resources and that becomes a really accessible option for families as we continue to move forward. I think there was lots of really, really beautiful spaces virtually. I do kind of love the normalization of a video chat. And I know some people are like, ah, well, I don't want to like get on the camera, but when you really think about, um, because it's normalized, because so many of us have, have learned how to do it well, 
you no longer have to, like you can connect with someone in a way more personal way Mm -hmm. um, than a phone call and actually see someone and physically check in with someone that might live in a different country or, you know, you're traveling and you want to call your mom because something like, it's not just a phone call. It's a warm face. It's like a friendly reminder that, okay, physically we both exist. And I think there's a comfort in that rather than just like, an ethereal voice. Um, So I do think that's very. And from a practitioner role, there was this really beautiful thing where we started to enter people's homes. Yes, virtually, but we got to see the background behind a child. We got to see which animals popped up. We got to see which teddy bear they grabbed (laughs) for when they were like in discomfort. And all of those things actually play out in the way that they're coping in the world. And I think there was beauty in that. There was, there was this idea that, you know, there was a lot of risk and vulnerability for these children and families to open up their visual space, like visually open up their homes to us so that we could see if the kitchen was a mess, then, you know, something's not going okay. Or we could see that if the child's room was like clean, like super, super clean. (laughs) Okay. Like, did you just get into a little bit of trouble and have to clean your room kind of idea? But we got to see them for themselves in their space of comfort and and I oh I just loved that I loved even with my students seeing that being able to have them have their pets with them or yeah yeah that adds the whole personal level to things I know I'm really grateful I'm such a movie buff that I love going to the movie theaters even if it's by myself just to you know turn off for a while and just focus on a film uh so Getting together on a Discord server with with some some friends and having all of our cameras on on the during the holidays, you know, all of us were alone. So we we decided to have movie nights every week. So we would we would all have our cameras on and we'd be watching a movie together. And the cameras were on, and we might not have known this, but we just were like, oh, let's throw our cameras on, and like you can see your friends' facial expressions when a funny part happens and when mm-hmm. a sad part happens, and. Um, so I'm, I'm, I really do hope that's something that we do hold on to for sure. Mm-hmm. So then are there plans this year, um, for the third years to go back to Ireland? It still feels a bit early. Okay. So we've decided that we won't go back for the, for the coming winter. I hope that we expand further. Yeah. And I was going to ask like, you know, you guys, or these third years have been going to Ireland for 10 years. Um, So, you know, maybe there is room on the horizon for some expansion. So what kind of places do you think would be good candidates um, Mm -hmm. for students to visit? And also, how would expanding this program past just visiting Ireland, like benefit the students? Because obviously, um, Canada and Ireland, while very, very vastly different, are very much the same in their kind of UK connection. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe there's perhaps different places that might offer very different perspectives. South Africa has a phenomenal child and youth care program. Uh, and and a lot of our core child and youth care work happens out of there. So they have the CYC net. It's a public facing or um, virtual journal that people can go on and there's conferences and workshops and such through them. And I think going there would be really wonderful I've not been to South Africa myself. I do know though that the context a little bit from the East African perspective and and 
when you walk down the streets, you see marginalization differently. I mean, we've all, hopefully many of us have read books and seen videos. And, you know, if you listen to Trevor Noah, you're going to know a little bit of it. But, but seeing that alive and seeing the discrepancy and the diasporic displacement of people, I think would be really powerful for students. So I, I would love to take students to South Africa. Um, I think that there are other spaces in Africa. I think East and West Africa are really booming in child and youth care. They are starting to become forefront leaders of the field. There are, I think, India, Pakistan. Much of our majority world would be really interesting for students to see, I think. Um, And there, there would be connection for certain students that might not travel to Ireland. Mm-hmm. So maybe international students, students that have, we have many students from the Philippines that come join our programs. Um, McEwen has a great international student body and going to some of their places of residence and their homes would be really powerful for Canadian students. There's two really important points with this. One is we need to see other cultures and we need to feel the discomfort that some of the people that live here in Canada yes. feel yes. when they are here. I think that's really important to embody that discomfort. I also think so many people are moving spaces. And so it is important for us to experience what that migration pattern might feel like. The biggest challenge would be doing it ethically, doing it intentionally. So there is a new podcast out, Ethos of Aid. Um, I I believe they're on their sixth or seventh episode um, that talks about what does it mean to do international aid work? We, you know, there's so many people grappling with this idea of how do we just land somewhere, volunteer volunteerism for a couple of weeks yeah. and then come back and feel like you've changed the world. And th- it, there's probably some really beautiful things in there. And then I would say there's a lot more challenging things in there and there's um, complexities with that. But for our students to actually go and see that, for them to see, we can't just plop ourselves in a space and feel like we understand and we know we need to be in discomfort. Yeah, 100%. And I think, I mean, something we've talked about on the podcast before is also like white savior syndrome mm-hmm. and kind of understanding where our motivations lie and why we're wanting to help um, and where that need comes to and kind of reflecting on like, okay, what is driving this desire? So yeah, all good things to yeah. consider. Um. So, yeah, before we kind of bounce away from um, this symposium, we're just wondering, like, how people can uh, maybe engage or participate with this year's conference. Yeah, we are hoping to expand to every year. Um, That was our first one. And so hopefully we will have future conferences virtually, maybe in person one day. Um, It's all on our website. So we do have a social care, child and youth care, global perspectives website. Okay, and we will link to that in the episode description. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's maybe double back a little bit. Uh, back to autoethnographic research, because again, I think it's just such an interesting um, kind of quote, unquote, non-traditional way of approaching research. So, you know, we kind of talked about how you are incorporating it, but can you kind of expand on maybe what the challenges are with this type of methodology and specifically like, why you've decided to maybe stick with it because it does sound like it's very vulnerable um, and maybe not as respected in some senses because it's personal. Mm -hmm. 
it definitely borders that biographical researchy line and is it therapeutic for the the researcher and one of the biggest challenges would be the validity of it how how do we claim validi- validity and reliability of that work part of it for me is i have journals from years and years so a lot of my work is embedded in that writing or that drawing from when i was young um so one of the biggest challenges i would say for me as an emerging scholar has been getting funding to continue this research i i know that our research office accepts it and they they respect it um but beyond that there is it's challenging to prove why this work is valuable to community and beyond the researcher and why they're not funding personal (laughs) reflective therapy, I guess. And um, yeah, that I would say is one of the biggest challenges. The other big challenges is competing with some of the quantitative or more traditional qualitative methods. And as an emerging scholar, there might not be enough backing behind me to prove that I'm going to come up with something valuable. And so it's risky. It's risky not only for me to put my story on the line, but it's risky for people to fund it because um, we don't know what's going to come back. And I think that's why I don't necessarily have a research agenda either is because I don't know what's going to come out of it. I don't have a hypothesis. I don't have a thesis that I'm kind of trying to support or make sense of. I'm just allowing narratives, people's stories, my story to tell me something and hope that it makes sense and it's valuable. I mean, but isn't that the heart (laughs) of like research and like the spirit of discovery and the spirit of just like wondering? Yeah. I mean, shouldn't wondering be enough? And like, obviously you probably know how to write a grant proposal. So (laughs) combined with the power to write a grant proposal, I would think. Well, maybe that's my barrier. (laughs) Maybe maybe I don't know how to write the proposal. Well, no, that's, I I don't think how how to write the proposal is the, the challenging part. And I think that, you know, every grant proposal that I've personally written, the only reason they've been successful is because the project is the is the is the the the, the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. And so I know you mm-hmm. have wonderful subject material. So the question comes to why is the funding, you know, not mm-hmm. not becoming available? And yeah. I, I don't want to touch too deep into that. Well, I, I would love to ask because I think that this is a great platform mm-hmm. to do that. So why is it important? Mm-hmm. Um because you say um, on your bio or your personal website that, and I am quoting you here, <laughs> with our ever-changing demographics, the increased awareness of marginalization and racism work like this, because of that, work like this can help communities come together, understand one another, and allow people a safe space to belong where they may feel like they do not belong. Mm-hmm. And now when we're looking at this research from the perspective of child and youth care, this is important. This seems like something very important. Mm-hmm. So now is your opportunity to like <laughs> elaborate, go in some depth and mm-hmm. kind of yeah. yeah, let us really know. The biggest part of this is honoring people's stories and narratives and trusting that people are telling us something valuable, meaningful and important. And it's, it's wrapping our heads around the idea that numbers don't equate to value. Always. They do have value. And I'm not, I'm not like contradicting that. There are some spaces for quantitative work. It's this idea that stories live beyond time. And so if I could have the opportunity to hear people's stories, 
write them up or publish them in really beautiful ways, whether that's videos, blogging. Um, that's the other piece, right? Is that I don't necessarily want to make a formal publication. I don't necessarily want to write a book. I don't want to necessarily write articles. And it's changing the academic mindset around things like blogs and podcasts being scholarship and this idea that public facing, and I keep using that public facing, right? The, the ability for community to have access to their own stories, their own research uh, outcomes and numbers is so important. I don't need to write for another scholar. I need right. to write for the community that I'm doing the work in. I want those people to be able to hold something and say, man, that's my story. And I love that someone else had access to it. And so part of that is then having people be able to see themselves in other people's stories. So then they can say, oh man, I'm not alone. I'm not the first person of color to experience a mental health psychosis. I'm not the first person that my parents don't understand that being on antidepressive medicine is a bad thing. And this isn't my own story. These are stories of young mm -hmm. people that are living in community. There is so much beauty in that and we need to go so back to the beauty. My my biggest goal in my research career would be to bring back the beauty of people's narratives, to honor oral histories, to represent ways of knowing that aren't maybe traditional scholarship and that is very hard to fund. <laughs> um, I think that... <laughs> Yes, it may be hard to fund now, and maybe it's my little dreamer's brain being like, la, la, la. Um, but I think, again, we're living in a society um, that is becoming increasingly not just socially conscious and socially aware of the need to listen to marginalized groups more mm -hmm. and approach things from their perspective and not just say, okay, we're going to fix a problem or approach you from this existing body of knowledge, but that traditional scholarship, I mean, postmodern kind of disillusion of, we don't really know what works yet for most people across most mm -hmm. disciplines. Like we're trying to navigate new knowledge all the time. And I think that hopefully fingers crossed that that space will become more inclusive mm -hmm. of all types of research because not just traditional ways of thinking and traditional quote unquote methodologies are valid or reputable or reliable. Mm -hmm. So, and I would love to add that, you know, um, the methodology methodologies and are changing, it seems mm -hmm. um, very quickly. Um, we're noticing it just with our, our guests that we've had in our very short, our first season <laughs> of research recasted. We've had, um, we've been gifted a few final reports from, from various other researchers within the, the university who, these aren't scholarly papers. I'm holding in my hands Voices from the Streets, um, uh, final report from uh, Cynthia Pudu, mm -hmm. uh, as well as- uh, Emily we, Mill and also uh, Emily Mill photo voice. Beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. with Photo Voice where, um, they went into these communities and gave them cameras and said, show me your world. Yeah. Tell me your story through photography and through art. And so they, they've put all these beautiful final reports together and this was their funded, funded, uh, research project. So I, this is, this is valuable. Yeah. This is extremely valuable, not for, maybe not for, 
I mean, it is valuable for scholars. <laughs> it, it's it's valuable period. for scholars, but it's valuable for our community to be able to, to yeah. you know, we're taught, we always try to talk about empathy and how, um, you know, everything that we're doing, whether it's from design, we're, we're talking empathy, trying to, trying to work with specific communities and understand mm-hmm. equity and equality and all these, these other complex things that, we're trying to dismantle yeah even sorry go ahead go go oh i was just saying like even like regardless of what field it seems like even if you're studying animals or even if you're studying um a fish or a, a computer program humans are at the center of it because what the reason that we study things is to give insight into like our own existence mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. i think having a human centered approach to research is definitely something that's going to be um, becoming more and more popular. And I say this as a very professional <laughs> academic <laughs> researcher person. No, I'm just, we're just, that's us. my two cents. I I mean, I think it depends on the way that we take up our research, right? So community action oriented research, which is part of maybe entangled in ethnographic auto ethnographic work would mean that the community has to be involved from from the start till the end and they deserve something back. They I many many years of researchers have gone in and come out with some good good thoughts, but they've gone in and they've taken knowledge and they've left. And it goes And they've taken it and put their name on it. Yes. And so the ethic of um, autoethnographic of owning, of being vulnerable, of being risky, of sitting with them, of of sharing in that is really important to me. Well, us too. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's growing. It's growing, and and these this is the beauty of being. I think at McEwen University, where we're still fairly new and dabbling in research, and we are teaching first institute. So this there is opportunity to shift and develop research in a really critical way that allows us to frame it in ways that are meaningful for us and meaningful for our students. And I really want to, as an emerging scholar, very new in my career, I want and I hope that McEwen takes that up in a really creative way. And they obviously are because they are supporting some really cool creative stuff. And it's saying that the final product doesn't have to look a particular way. It doesn't have to look like counterparts at other institutions. Exactly. Yeah. I think we need to stop comparing ourselves. I think, you know, we are this new this new um, institution, this new young university that <laughs> we, are, we can be our own person. We can be our own university. And I'm so excited that, you know, some of the th- projects that I've been working on, I've been very, very lucky to have been a part of this. I've been, I'm, I'm extremely lucky to be able to sit here and have this conversation with you um, and, and everything beyond. Yeah. I just uh, want to sneak in another yeah. question um, because I realize, you know, we've talked a lot about your work as in like an emerging scholar and yourself as a researcher. Um, but I'm very curious, like how this research um, has changed you as an educator, because again, McEwen is like a, a teaching first university. So, mm-hmm. yeah, if you want to just let us know, I believe my teaching is research service informed, and so what I mean by that is I believe that what I share in the classroom is rooted in what's happening in community, and it's rooted in 
the knowledge that's being produced from my research, research of other scholars, uh, traditional and non-traditional formats. And I believe that that changes the classroom environment. I think it keeps it alive. It keeps it new. I can't teach the same thing I taught last year, this year, because the context has changed. And if I am research and service informed or community informed, I have to account for the shifts that have happened over the last 18 months. The global pandemic has shifted the way that children, youth and families are. Um, so I think it helps. I also believe that teaching a very practical skill around child and youth care and child and youth counseling, which our, our students graduate with that title here in Alberta, has to be practical. And so we have to be grounded and aware of what's happening outside of the McEwen halls. So it's okay to go down to Boyle Street and feel that discomfort and not know what's happening and then sit with someone who is really struggling in that moment and have a really beautiful conversation and then bring that conversation in a confidential manner back into the classroom and be like, this is what people are experiencing every day. And we are the lucky ones that get to go sit beside them and journey with them. And I believe, oh, I just, I believe there's so much beautiful power in that. And I think that's what makes graduates of the program so, so wanted in community is because they get to do that every day. I really love the theme of, uh, that we've talked about multiple times today of feeling that discomfort. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a barrier that personally is 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 hard to break down in personally um, with a lot of people so um, you know I, I I'm starting to warm up to this idea of welcoming the discomfort because that shows that we're growing you know the discomfort is the growing pains of of being em uh, empathetic to to other people to to learning how um, to listening and to being understanding of other other people's. And I think like, yeah, also just being conscious that um, a lot of topics, a lot of things that you might encounter or research or read or see um, make you uncomfortable. And no one wants to be uncomfortable, but some people very luckily um, come from a place of privilege where they almost never have to feel mm -hmm. uncomfortable because they can just remove right themselves here. from the situation. Yeah. Like I speak from, I'm a white like yeah. settler colonialist um, and I don't have to feel uncomfortable if I don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really important that, you know, just that that's acknowledged, but like, do it, do the work. And mm -hmm. I think teaching students that, especially them mm -hmm. that come from backgrounds like my own, mm -hmm. um, is really important because again, how are you going to work with children and youth if you don't have empathy or if you can't be uncomfortable? Kids say crazy <laughs> stuff and like, yeah. I'm uncomfortable around children. Yeah. I'm like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and if we can't, if we can't feel that discomfort and I try and bring it into my classroom for better or worse, I, I try and bring it into my classroom because it, it is hopefully a safer space to experience it for the first time. Yeah. It's hopefully the first place that you can hear about um, something that we might common language would be put a trigger warning around. And if you're in a mental health class, I might not offer you a trigger warning at the beginning of every class, but no person that we work with is also going to offer you a trigger. warning. Yeah. So the one example I'll give is I might bring up the concept of suicide and how it's been on the rise. And it's it's not just a 
privileged position anymore. People from all walks of life are experiencing this. And I might not trigger warning it because no person that we work with is going to be like, P.S. tomorrow when I see you, I'm going to tell you that I'm suicidal. Like they're not going to give us that. So we need to be responsive and be able to. And I think that only comes with lived experience. And that goes back to that autoethnographic, that lived experience becomes so important to the work that we do. And for people that don't get to experience it in other spaces, hopefully the classroom can be that safe space to do it. That's beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. Um, well, you know, I think that's just about everything that we have for you. Uh, but we would like to open up now the space for you, um, and this is where you can basically talk about anything you want to talk about. Um, if there's any calls to action, if there's mm -hmm. any you want to shout out for some funds or collaborators or reflect or yeah. anything, um, the floor is yours. The room is yours. Thank you. This has been this has been really exciting, and I think my first call to action is to see, hear, and feel with young people in your lives. So really sit with them, really notice when their bodies are twitching, when their hands go cold, when they crawl into you for a hug or when they move away from you and just ask for personal space in either verbal or nonverbal, but become aware of the people that are around you. And I say little people or young people because that's predominantly the work I do, but that's for everyone, right? Um, becoming aware of how we are in space with another, uh, one another is a huge call uh, for me. I really, really believe in connection. So if you want to reach out, if you have thoughts on recreation, spirituality, belonging, don't hesitate. I'm pretty easy to find virtually. Um, I have a, a yeah, I, I just think, and I think for young scholars or practitioners, let your passions drive you. Let them be the core of your work. If you love art, go and do something artistic. If you love outside nature walks, make that part of your career, regardless of what your passion or your field of study is. Um, let your passions drive you. And I think that if we all just allow that to happen, we'll be so happy. And I bring that happiness back. I think one thing I've learned through COVID is like, you have to make your own happiness and you have to just love every moment. And so, yeah, just find that in yourself. Um, there's so much great work. I could talk for hours, but there are so much great work that's happening. There's places like Fearless Collective. They're a group of women um, out of the majority world who are using murals to depict lived experiences. Check them out. Like, go down to the legislative like space if there's a protest. You don't have to be a part of it. Just become witness to some of the things people are speaking to. I think researchers like Natalie Lovelace, Dr. Natalie Lovelace out of U of A, and her shifting of thinking about research creation is really beautiful. So if you're a young scholar, look into that stuff. Um, think with your Indigenous colleagues and students and peers and families and understand that their land is really important and their land is not ours to take for granted. And that Indigenous land crosses every single geographical space that we could trespass on so be aware of that um enjoy your travels but do it intentionally and i, I really like i could go on a rampage about this but <laughs> just find your space and find your way of being in this world that you know is is uncomfortably comfortable 
I don't think there is a better place to end it that than was on beautif- that. Yeah. Beautifully put, and it I every episode that we 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 end on it always makes me have more questions after, and it um it, I love listening to these stories, and I love love learning all about the different things that we've been talking about today. Um, and I think it's making me, um, hopefully growing as a person. And I, I, I'm super appreciative of that. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you. Shaman, thank you again. Um, so much for joining us. That was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're looking to learn more, don't forget to check out the links in the episode description. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. You can support this podcast by listening on your favorite podcasting platforms with new episodes every two weeks. And don't forget to follow and give us a like on Instagram at Research Recasted. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are all by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producers are Cynthia Pudu, Jason Malenko, and Ray Barry. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Next season. Next season. Stay cool. <laughs>